Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, it's the story of a university that sold over 300 people into slavery in Louisiana to keep the university going. Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to two people who are involved in an incredible memory project to bring the descendants of these enslaved individuals together. Plus, I'll be talking to David Allen Lambert about researching your Revolutionary War soldiers as we remember Independence Day. That's all this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect. A presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome, America, to America's Family History Show. Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. Independence Day weekend, I know a little bit after the fact, but nonetheless, I think we're all still reveling in that. And uh, we're going to be talking to David Allen Lambert about that coming up a little later on in the show. Of course, after our first segment coming up here in a few minutes, we're going to talk about researching your revolutionary ancestors. Plus, today we're going to talk to the people who are behind the GU-272 Memory Project. Richard Cellini and uh, Claire Vale, she is the connection with American ancestors right now. And this is the story from 1838 about Georgetown University who sold some 300 enslaved persons down into Louisiana in order to save the institution. And Richard and Claire are part of a project to basically trace down all the descendants and bring them back together. It's an incredible story. We're going to have it for you in two parts coming up in just a little bit. Right now, let's head out to Boston and talk to David Allen Lambert. He is the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. And uh, David, a big day for you the other day. Birthday number, I, can I reveal this? Oh, sure. Yeah, number five zero. Yep, halfway to 100. Yeah, you were like three <laughs> weeks in a day when uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon. Were you watching? <laughs> you, know, I, you know, it's funny you mention that. I was always told as a child by my mother that when the moon landing happened, they propped me up in her lap to watch our television. So I did witness the moon landing. Yes. Well, in Family Historic News this week, we have our friend Cece Moore, whose first case pertaining to a person of interest in a double murder, all that work has paid off. The jury has convicted this person based on Cece's research. Yeah, this is her first case. She solved it over a weekend from a Friday night to a Monday morning last year. We talked to her about it at that time. And Cece, of course, is pretty excited about it. And I'm excited to tell you that she's going to be on the show next week for two segments. We're going to talk about this, other cases, the situation with GEDmatch, the regrowing of the database that's so necessary for this kind of work. It's going to be a great show next week with Cece Moore. Well, I'll tell you, genealogy kind of rocks my world. And back in the 1990s, we lost Kurt Cobain from Nirvana, who died tragically at the age of 27. But he actually was looking into his own genealogy. In fact, before the days of the Internet and DNA, he actually located a lady in San Francisco, California, who had been researching his family for years. Yeah. Did it by the telephone. And, and <laughs> he, those days? He talked about actually playing concerts in Ireland and feeling like it was almost an out-of-body experience and being in tears, just feeling that this is where he was from. I know that feeling when I go across the pond, that's for sure. 
Yeah. Well, other family history news. Let's go back on the Wayback Machine, leave the 1990s and go back to, the, say, the 1740s. The father of our country, George Washington, actually penned a genealogy of the Washington family in Virginia. They believe this document, that is, at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., was written in the late 1740s, early 1750s, about the time he was going into the military. Wow. And you look at this thing, there are pictures of it online. In fact, you can find the story on ExtremeGenes.com, and you can see him writing out. It's a very rudimentary family tree. It lists all of his siblings and his parents and the children of uh, one of his siblings. And then it goes back like three generations to his great-grandparents. So it's all right there. And the article is essentially about the fact that genealogy for wealthy planters and people of that ilk in those times... uh, Their genealogy was very important to them in making connections and marriages and business transactions and things like this. So fascinating to think that George was working on his family tree back when he would have been, I believe, a teenager. Mm -hmm. That's really the truth, because in the 1740s, late, he would have been a teenager in early 20s or late teens. A very interesting story to know that he was concerned about his own family tree, the father of our country. So in keeping up with Independence Day weekend, I just want to toss out that you may know that the last signer of the Declaration of Independence was Charles Carroll. In fact, there was a cameo fictional role of him in National Treasure that he knew where the treasure was. But the real secret lies with Julia Stockton, who was the last widow, from what I can determine, from the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Julia, born in 1759, died July 7, 1848. Aside from being the wife of Benjamin Rush, a signer, her own father, Richard Stockton, was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Wow. When did the last revolutionary soldier pass, David? You know about this stuff. Right. I wrote the book with Maureen Taylor, The Last Muster, and one of the images that we included was Daniel Frederick Bakeman, who died April the 5th, 1869, and he was the last veteran receiving a pension. However, fast forward a little bit to 1906, and we have a lady in Vermont, Esther Sumner, who married in 1835 at the ripe old age of 21, to her husband, who was 75 years of age, when she died in 1906, 131 years after Lexington and Concord, she was the last widow of the Revolution. Wow. What a great story. And we're going to talk more about revolutionary ancestors coming up later in the show with David as we explain how you can do certain research and where some of the great sources are to find some of those stories. All right, David. Thanks so much. Talk to you a little later on. Sounds good. And as you're probably aware from listening to Extreme Genes over the past several years, there's been an interesting story that came out of Georgetown University about their history back in 1838. And from this has come the Georgetown Memory Project. And we have the founder of that project on the line with us, Richard Cellini. How are you, Richard? I'm terrific, and I'm pleased to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. And we have Claire Vale. She is the Director of Creative and Digital Strategy for AmericanAncestors.org, and she's also the Director of the GU-272 Memory Project at American Ancestors. How are you, Claire? I'm great, Scott. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, we've got so much to cover here. For people who are not familiar with the story, let's just kind of review it. And Richard, you want to start, I think it was, what, it's 2015 that we first started hearing about the discovery of the records of the 272 enslaved people who were sold off to basically save Georgetown, which was then known as Georgetown College. 
Well, that's exactly right. You know, it had never been a, a secret or a mystery at Georgetown that uh, Georgetown and the Maryland Jesuits had once owned enslaved people, but it was all very sort of hazy. Nobody really knew the details. Well, in November of 2015, a bunch of undergraduates started protesting uh, the 1838 slave sale, and they brought it into very high relief. They put a lot of detail that had never been there before, that it was more than 272 enslaved men, women, and children. In fact, it turns out it was about 314 enslaved people who were sold. And they were sold all at once to three different sugar plantations down in Louisiana. And they were sold to basically rescue Georgetown University from bankruptcy. So, you know, suddenly something that had sort of been just kicking around in Georgetown's attic was really sort of thrust into the forefront of modern day consciousness. Well, well, certainly because of the fact that Georgetown would not exist today, apparently, had they not done this, right? That's exactly right. Georgetown University was founded, built, and operated for the first 50, five zero years of its existence uh, with proceeds from slave labor. And then in 1838, about the 50th anniversary of Georgetown, these enslaved people were called upon uh, involuntarily to save uh, Georgetown, literally, to save it from financial bankruptcy. So they were involuntarily uh, sold and their families were broken up and they were all sold to three different uh, plantations in uh, southern Louisiana, taken away from their homes in Southern Maryland, where they'd been together for almost 200 years before the 1838 slave sale. So basically, the story kind of revealed a rotting foundation, basically, for Georgetown University. Well, not only that, I mean, it completely displaced Georgetown's founding story. I mean, you know, the, the, the founding story of Georgetown had been that it had been founded by rich white Catholics, either from Maryland or America or, or maybe even England, and that it was founded by white Catholic priests. Well, none of that is true. We now have uh, replaced founding myth with uh, founding fact that Georgetown University was founded, built, operated, and paid for by the involuntary labor of uh, hundreds and hundreds of African-American families. Yeah. Now, Claire, uh, how did American ancestors come to work with this Georgetown Memory Project? So back in 2017, Richard approached us and said that he had genealogical research prepared by two genealogists, Melissa Ruffner and Judy Riffle. And Melissa is based in Maryland and Judy is based in Louisiana. And so they both had lots of experience and access to the archives in those respective states. They had compiled the genealogies under Richard's direction for these 314 people. And so Richard had asked one of them, where should I go to get a searchable database built out of this material? And I think it was Judy who said, well, the gold standard for genealogy is American ancestors. Go talk to them. And so we had a meeting. (laughs) And yeah, it's it's nice nice when other people say that about us. So that's that's great. We take the compliment. So he came to us. We had scheduled, I think, an hour-long meeting that turned into a three-hour meeting, and we were honored to work on this project. So that's how it came about, and then we started getting the research delivered to us, and before long, I think six months, we had a searchable database. And now I see on AmericanAncestors.org you actually have a section there for the GU-272 Memory Project. 
where living descendants can find out where they might fall into this project. So I also see that there's a GU-272 Descendants Association that has a website as well. So there's a, a lot of action happening here, and I guess so much to talk about, too, because I know Georgetown University kind of has to own this now for the first time in their history. And, and tell us, Richard, what are they doing? Well, you know, it's been an interesting journey for Georgetown. Uh, in fact, I got involved in this back in November of 2015 quite by accident. You know, I, I had heard about these student protests in the uh, fall of 2015 about this 1838 slave sale, but I'm just a Georgetown alumnus. I'm nobody. I'm not rich. I'm not famous. I'm not powerful at Georgetown. But anyway, I emailed a very senior member of a working group that uh, Georgetown had established, the president of Georgetown had established a working group uh, to uh, look into this uh, 1838 uh, slave sale. And I wrote to a very senior member and I said, my question really has nothing to do with Georgetown. My question is, what happened to the people? You know, what, what happened yes. to the more than 300 men, women and children who were sold uh, to southern Louisiana in uh, in 1838? You know, because the working group was talking about, you know, putting plaques up on campus or, you know, changing the script to the campus tour or changing names on campus buildings. And while not trivial, I didn't think that was central. What I thought was central is what happened to the people. Anyway, even though I'm nobody, I got an answer back from this very senior member of the president's working group. And here's what he told me. And I'm virtually quoting here. He said, Richard, Georgetown University looked into this just a couple of years ago. And what we discovered was that they all immediately succumbed to a fever in the malodorous swamp world of Louisiana. In other words, he was saying they all died immediately and they left no trace and no descendants. So, you know, that's just two or three years ago. Wow. Two or three years ago, you know, Georgetown sort of folklore was, and even a member of the senior member of the working group believed that, oh, there's no point in going to look. They all immediately died of a fever in the malodorous swamp world of Louisiana. Where, so, where did so that we come from? from? <laughs> well, you know, that's an interesting, that's, you know, that's a question we all have to ask ourselves. I think what's remarkable about that statement is not that he said it, knowing it to be false. That would be too easy. I, I think what's right. remarkable about that statement is that he said it, believing it to be true. I, I think what you're hearing there is almost 200 years of Georgetown University trying to make itself feel better. It's sad enough to think that 300 men, women, and children were sent to southern Louisiana and immediately died. But it's truly terrifying to imagine that they survived. It's truly terrifying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I think Georgetown just sort of told itself that, oh, you know, there's no trace. You know, they, they didn't have names. They didn't have families. They didn't even survive. So there's just no, there's no point. And of course, genealogists know the truth. Right. Genealogists know that it's highly unlikely. I mean, even I, you know, at the time thought mm -hmm. even the Titanic had survivors. You know, the, sure. the chances of, of, of all 300 people just immediately dying of a fever is next to nothing. But, but again, genealogists know the truth, right? Genealogists know that, that yeah. gigantic groups of people in the hundreds don't just disappear no, and leave no truth. not all of them all at once. That, that's just insane. And to think that yeah. somebody really at that highest level of education would even think that, you know, no matter where it came from, didn't analyze where they got that information is just astounding to me. So, Claire, now you've put together this project team, and now you work together with uh, Richard, and you guys have put together this amazing link on the site. What can people find there if they feel that they might have a connection to the GU-272? So there's lots and lots of information that descendants or people who think they're descendants can find on this website. 
There, there's so much. There's the there's the ancestor spreadsheet. There's individual PDFs of each family's family history. There's graphical trees built out with the family histories. It's such a deep site. Um, so I, I want to make one point about what Richard just said. So we knew that when Richard approached us, that the genealogists and Richard had identified more than 4,000 living descendants. And we thought, wouldn't it be amazing if we could speak to these people and understand what their opinions are about their ancestry, find out what they know about their ancestry, find out how they feel about the whole situation, about their ancestors having been slaves, ask them how they feel about Georgetown. One of the things that Maxine Crump, who um, is a reporter in Louisiana and a descendant, has said that has always stuck with us, she said, nothing about us without us. And so that became very essential for this project. We didn't want to just put up a searchable database and have done with it. We wanted to build a monument that celebrated the legacy of this group. And so for this project, we traveled to Oakland, California, to Louisiana at least three times. And then we also did interviews with descendants in Maryland. So those are some of the major um, areas where descendants are living. And it was amazing working with the descendants, having the descendants bring their voices to this project was really a, a hugely critical piece because you can have the data But if you don't have the human part of the story, I think you're really missing something, particularly with a story like this, with a group of people whose ancestry doesn't get that Mayflower treatment. If you're descended from John Alden or William Bradford, generally many people in your family have known that. That's that's part of your family folklore. A lot of African-Americans don't have that privilege. So this was an attempt to put the data alongside the stories of the modern descendants. If you go to the homepage, so this this website, the URL is gu272.americanancestors.org. And so you guys just talked about, Claire, you were going around the country. You were interviewing many of the descendants. Let's just start with you. What were some of the things that you were hearing from them about their people and how they felt about this? So perhaps not surprisingly, because this is the case with many African-Americans, their family lore only stretches back so many generations. And not to generalize, I'm confident there's exceptions, but most of the people we spoke with could go back two or three generations. And at that point, there was a wall. And I, you know, if we pressed for more information, people would say, well, my great-great-grandmother never talked about her people or, or she didn't know who she was descended from. So we heard a lot of that kind of story. But what really came through was the self-reliance and the resilience of the people and their families. So if you wanted a house built, you built it yourself, or you had your uncle or your father or other men in the family would come over and build the house. If you needed medical care, your grandmother or another woman in the community would bandage your toe if you broke your foot. So there was a lot of reliance on one another rather than some sort of infrastructure because that just wasn't available. So we heard story after story like that. We also heard lots of stories of joy and love and faith 
being the glue that held people together. And those interviews are, are all captured and available for people to listen to on the website. And I'm assuming that's just a, an ongoing, growing thing, yes? It is. We spoke to about 50 people, 50 descendants in Maryland, in Louisiana, in Oakland, California. And then there's a few other interviews from other places in Washington State and a couple other places around the country. Our intention is to keep interviewing people. And if people would like to be interviewed, they can fill out a form on the website or write to an email address, and we will respond and try to set up a, a time to come to them. Richard, uh, you are the founder of the, the Memory Project, so you're the one who's been reaching out and finding these descendants and obviously now partnering with AmericanAncestors.org. Tell me about the community of the descendants and, and how do they get together? Is it mostly through social media? Are they physically having uh, get-togethers, reunions, and are they interacting with Georgetown? Well, it's all of the above. I mean, uh, literally, these families have now been uh, reunited for the first time in more than 180 years. I mean, in some cases, these families were split in 1838 between uh, a branch in Maryland and a branch in Louisiana, and they were all separated from each other. It wasn't just 272 distinct, isolated individuals. These families had been together for 200 years before Georgetown sold them. So there's a high degree of intermarriage and interrelationships. Even the Jesuits themselves in the 1838 uh, period called them the family. So you can just imagine there's been this explosion of kinship and family reunion and reunification been going on. I myself, uh, about a year ago this summer, attended the first ever reunion of GU-272 descendants. It was in southern Louisiana, just a few miles from one of the plantations. They were sent in 1838. And more than 600 GU-272 descendants attended from all over the country. It wow. was deeply, deeply <laughs> emotional. I mean, literally, I was just shaking afterwards for about a week, and everybody else was, too. And, in fact, I called a GU-272 descendant, and I said, gosh, it's almost like, you know, post-traumatic stress syndrome, but it's positive. I said, you know, what's the positive word for that? And there was a long pause, and she said, the word for that is grace. Yes. So that's how it feels. I mean, one descendant said to me, Richard, I no longer have to watch the movie Roots anymore 150 times trying to imagine my own family history. Now I know my family's history. Another woman said to me, reparations? We don't want reparations right now. I just want my family tree. Wow. And has that come together very, basically for them? How many generations back yeah. do you have that tree? Well, on average, it, it goes back four or five generations, and uh, for some families, it goes back even before that. I mean, we, we have been able to establish the genealogy for some of the GU-272 families back into the 1750s, starting in the 1750s all the way forward. I mean, wow. there's a tremendous amount of original, written, archival material about African Americans in this country. I mean, the sad truth is that whenever black people are most treated like property— that's when the record keeping is the best, whether it's mortgages or ship manifests mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. taxation records or wills and uh, estate inventories. Suddenly, everybody has a first name and a last name. They're grouped in family groups, people's age, their height, even their skin color. So I think it's been a shock to everybody how much information is available about enslaved African-Americans before emancipation, sometimes 100 years before emancipation. So, Claire, other universities and institutions 
institutions can be involved in this project or similar ones, correct? I don't see any barrier. We know that universities have been involved in holding slaves and and using slaves to their advantage. There's a history of that at Brown and, and Harvard. There's businesses as well that participated in this that have a long history in the U.S. Um, And it's all one big complex economic story and slave owning is a part of American history and its economy. If institutions have their hands on data, the best thing they can do now is take that data to a genealogical organization like ours and let us do the work that we do and make that data available to descendants so that they can do their family history. I mean, that's one way of taking steps toward repairing that breach. Yeah, absolutely. And from what you were saying, Richard, it sounds like that is a huge deal for these descendants now, realizing the strength of those who came before them to endure this and, and where they are today. Absolutely true. There's no question about it. It's also remarkable how many of the GU-272 families had uh, preserved uh, through their oral tradition bits and pieces of the story of the slave sale from 1838. I mean, it's really uncanny and eerie. It it sends shivers uh, up and down your spine when you hear about the little facts and details that had been passed down over five, six generations from 1838 until the present day about the 1838 slave sale. So this history just means the world to them. But also, you know, as, as I I always say, if you love American history, you'll definitely like black history because it's just more of what you love. You know, black history is American history and American history is black history. It's all bound together. Oh, Uh, yes. And, you know, honestly... When it comes to other universities, and Claire's absolutely right, there's at least a dozen major American colleges that have a legacy connection to slavery and human trafficking. I always say that when it comes to finding the living descendants of your university slaves, the hard part isn't the finding. The hard part is the looking. It's hard to look. But when we look, we find. He's Richard Cellini. He is the founder of the Georgetown Memory Project, and she is Claire Vale, and she is the American ancestor side of this amazing thing. You can find out more at gu272.americanancestors.org. There's also a Descendants Association that has their own site, gu272.net. Sounds like a lot of ways to be involved, and it's a story that's going to carry on for a long time, you guys. We hope so. Thank you so much. Yes, absolutely. And coming up next, it's Ask Us Anything with David Allen Lambert, talking about finding the stories of your revolutionary ancestors. And, uh, David, we have a question from Patty in Atlanta, Georgia. And she says, are there free databases by which we can research our Revolutionary War ancestors? Good question, Patty. Patty, that is a really good question. In fact, I can think of two right off the top of my head, but ladies go first, so I'm going to mention the DAR website. So the Daughters of the American Revolution website, if you go to dar.org slash national hyphen society slash genealogy, you will go to where they have their genealogy research. The GRS system has an ancestor search, a member search, and a descendants database search. So you can search for people who have joined, search between your ancestors who had patriotic service and your ancestors who picked up a musket and fought during the American Revolution. Now, on the same token, and I have to give just cause because I'm the state historian for the Massachusetts Sons of the American Revolution, the SAR website is www.sar.org dot org slash genealogy slash genealogical hyphen research hyphen services 
And what you can do there is you can search for your ancestors who are soldiers and patriots. Just keep in mind, though, that if you are a DAR or an SAR application match, you are still going to have to do the actual research. And if they're older applications, your patriot or soldier may have been disproved. Oh, wow. So you got to deal with that. By the way, for the websites, you don't have to remember it if you're driving somewhere as you listen <laughs> to this, because it's in the transcript that our good friend Tahira puts together every week for the show. And you can find that at ExtremeGenes.com with this episode. David, how about paid sites? Of course, there's always Fold3. Oh. There's Fold3. There's Ancestry.com. Even American Ancestors, our website for the New England Historic Genealogical Society, has Revolutionary War-related items. The other thing to keep in mind, and just steering a little bit away from paid sites, is a little bit of a tip. If you're looking for muster rolls, on occasion, you will find that the Family History Library has digitized military records for the Revolution. May it be published books. You can go state by state in the catalog, scroll down to military records, and find muster rolls in the catalog wow. as well. And that would be at FamilySearch.org. That is the official site, of course, for the Family History Library. And uh, just explain what a muster is, David, and how that worked. Sure. A muster roll is essentially the list of the soldiers that are there at the muster or the calling of the soldiers in. And a muster would have been called, the names would have been read off, and it would be present or absent, or in some cases, dead. You will find that these muster rolls carry on throughout the war from 1775 right to the end at Yorktown. And it's a tradition that didn't change very much straight on through to the 20th century. Yeah, that's right. So these are really valuable, too, because you can find out other people then who served with your ancestor. And sometimes those other people can reveal stories about your ancestors as a result of their applications for pensions. Exactly. And speaking once again of free sites, don't forget findagrave.com and billiongraves.com are websites that are free that you can search for gravestones. How about the gravestones of Revolutionary War soldiers? Many people have gone out to these cemeteries and photographed the patriots of the Revolution, and you can find them online, again, for free. Boy, I love that. That is a great suggestion. And a lot of them put the flags next to them, and it's really decorative. And it's another great way to determine if your late 1700s-era ancestor was among those who fought for independence. All right. And, uh, David, this one comes from Alan down in Dallas, Texas, and he's asking about the best way to find stories. And, of course, we touched on that just a little bit. We're talking about revolutionary ancestors. The pension records. Boy, if your ancestor had one of those or even his widow, there's a lot of material to be found there and even among those who served with him. That's true. In fact, I go over the pension file and I make a list of the associates. First off, I want to figure out how they know them. And sometimes it's pretty obvious that they're in the service with them. They mention about a battle, but sometimes they're doctors or they're ministers and they're giving their account or somebody's a witness about a marriage. Uh, what's interesting is, if, so if your ancestor was born overseas, came to America, then fought, someone might be a sibling that may have been over in Scotland or Ireland that witnessed the marriage, and it's right in that pension file. Oh, a lot wow. of times, soldiers also mention where they were born overseas or when they were actually born. So sometimes it's the only primary source on their birth or marriage. Yeah, these things are just really rich with information. I will say, though, I've run into many where there's a lot of false information in there. 
And mm-hmm. what I sense from that is lawyers uh, trying to get their share of the money from the pension for basically padding the resume a little bit. <laughs> have you run into a lot of that, David? Yeah, I have, in fact. Or service extension, where the soldiers serve two weeks, and all of a sudden now he's serving two months or two years, and oh, we can't find any proof of that, but it's just their word versus the pension office. And I can tell you, if your ancestor wasn't granted a pension and only applied, there's no certificate number, sometimes you're going to find more paperwork than a regular pension that got approved because they're fighting for it and the stories can be lengthy. Yeah, it's interesting. One pension that I went through involving an ancestor showed that the lawyers had actually gone and interviewed people who were associated with a man with a similar name, not exactly the same. My guy was Samuel Pease, and they were interviewing about somebody from the same area named Samuel Pierce. And so I'm getting all these fabulous stories, and then some of the details didn't start to sync up with what was in the military records. And suddenly I'm having to figure out how do I sort this out, which stories had to do with Samuel Pierce and which ones had to do with my Samuel P. So be careful when you find these things that you don't take everything at face value. Also, memories have been affected by many, many years. In fact, that last one I was talking about, the interviews were done in the 18th. 1940s. So these were very aged veterans and relatives and who they served under and where they fought and how long they fought and all those things don't necessarily always match the military record itself. Very true. And within any part of historical research, you really want to try to prove, as the pension office did, if there's any validity to their claim. I mean, now we have access to muster rolls that we've talked about earlier and other resources that are in there, such as DAR and SAR applications, so you can see if the service was right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, David, thanks so much. This is the time of year for uh, looking into the revolutionary ancestors. It's a great time. And of course, any time is a really good time for these guys. They're fascinating people. And I think all of us are always excited to learn about a new one and what their service was about. Thanks so much for your time. Always a pleasure, my friend. Talk to you next week. All right. Hey, that is a wrap on this week's show. Next week, it's a big one, a two-part interview with C.C. Moore from Parabon Nano Labs talking about her work on DNA cold cases. We're going to talk about what's going on with Jedmatch. We're going to talk about her first conviction of the very first person she was able to pinpoint in a double murder that dated back to 1987. Talk to you again next week. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.